Yo, welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, John Solo. I'll be talking to touring musicians, artists, producers, engineers, and crewmen all around the world. I'm interested in knowing what brings people to this crazy lifestyle and how music became their passion. I, for one, have spent most of my life in front of a keyboard and continue to learn and understand why it is I do what I do. I feel honored and privileged to have worked and become friends with many of the guests on this show. And for those of you who don't understand what hotel life is about, you're listening to Late Checkout. All right, well, I'm here in uh, Luxembourg with my man, Chris Vallejo. How you he's, doing? He's quick to help me out real quick and do this because he's got to leave in 50 minutes to uh, go with the crew to the, the oh, venue, yeah. correct? And uh, actually, you're an engineer producer and That's a right. studio owner, so you're my first kind of like studio guy. Um, and... Being a tech for this tour right now is not something you normally do, correct? No, it was um, it was just something that I thought would be amazing to try. Just to try? Yeah, it? well, just because I, you know, I've been in the studio and bands come in when they've been on tour. Yeah. And everyone's always talking about this, that, and the other. And I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah, you'll be like, why are they so tired? I don't why really they get about it. This bus business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely figured it out quick. I mean, it's actually funny because some of the guys and I were like, wait, do you remember what Chris Vallejo used to look like? Because we don't even remember. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the studio, from studio Chris to road Chris is completely yeah. different. Yeah, well, I came across you guys in Auckland where Mike and I were going to go and do some recording. That's and right. That was just one day. And I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of a bit odd and they were all tired yeah, yeah I was wasn't tired. there I was I just flew in from New York I remember and I saw you in the lobby and you're like, yeah let's hang out and we're like right. yeah yeah maybe <laughs> that's right yeah so you were it's... thinking we were all gonna be hanging and having a party but yeah. well no, I just you know I, I, I guess I didn't know what it was like to actually do a to be on tour yeah as opposed to coming to the studio for, for two or three weeks yeah it's it's much uh, it's there are two different Completely different animals, and, and uh, yeah, the thing about the people don't understand the road is how tiring it actually is. Just exactly, and how you know it, it sounds amazing yeah. from the outside. You sit there and go, "Wow, you're in a different city every day," and you, you know, you're hanging out and you're going to festivals. Yeah, when you're actually doing it, you're kind of like, Meh. you don't really get to see that much of a city. No, and a lot of the time, it's you know, bump out, hop on the bus, sleep uncomfortably for yeah. ten hours. Arrive in a new place. Yeah. So. I always say, like, the best part about a tour is talking about it after it. That's right. Not while you're actually on it. Because <laughs> when you're home and you're like, oh, man, we went to this city and that yeah, city. Yeah, it it's was... amazing. I was telling people when I went back to Sydney recently, and, and they were like, fucking, oh, this rock star. It's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, was it? I don't know. <laughs> no, it didn't feel like it at all. It's a lot of, like, boredom, too, actually. Yeah, it's a lot so of sitting waiting around. around. Yeah. Well, my sister's an actor, and she said the same thing when she's doing a film, like, most of the time, you're just sitting around waiting. Oh, yes. They sit all day. And yeah. then they say, like, three lines all day well, a thousand different like, times. Get in at 5 a.m., make up. Yeah. Oh, man. And then you're there, and you pretty much wait. And then, like, 9 o'clock at night, you get the call. And yeah. You around 10 minutes, and then you're out. Yeah. I don't know. How they how do they get... I mean, pr- um, planning a tour seems hard enough. I can't <clears> imagine <throat> planning making a movie or anything. Or Game yeah, of Thrones. Pr- or- <laughs> oh, pr- oh, my. I was, we were watching that last night. I was singing the production. I was like, yeah. how do they do all that? Yeah. But, um, well, let's start from the beginning. Like, when did you, did you, so how did you get into this whole thing? Well, my, it's just, my dad's a musician. Okay, he yes. He went to Australia in the, the 60s as a, in a part of a Filipino big band. What did he play? Guitar and sang. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I, um, 
I was always into music from a really early age. Um, and I remember when I was, I don't know, when you're at that age where you have to start deciding about your career. Um, I was really good at maths and physics and chemistry. So my career advisor said, well, you should probably be an engineer or a scientist or something. I still wanted to be a musician. Yeah. But dad was like, no, you don't want to be a musician. Really? Yeah. yeah. He, he really talked it down. He was like, no, nah, it's, you know, it's terrible money and working late and it's hard work and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I went and studied mechanical engineering. And oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I pretty much got my degree. I didn't finish it. This is in, this, so you didn't play an instrument growing up? No, I did. I always played guitar from about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I wanted, yeah, I really wanted to do music... Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a professional podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so then I started mechanical engineering, realized at the end of it that I didn't want to be a mechanical engineer. So I, um, I went over to the UK for a couple of years. I just did some backpacking, went back to Adelaide, and then thought, you know what, I'm really interested in music. But at the same time, I'm really interested in the technical side of it. Okay. Because um, it's, you know, Dad always had gear in the garage and I'd always sort of tinker with stuff and amplifiers and all that sort of shit. So, you know, I, I sort of thought about it and I was like, well, the interesting thing about record engineering and production is it's, it's the intersection of art and science. It's like, you know, technically you're, you're trying to make something really good, yeah. technically perfect, at the same time you're making a piece of art. So I, I realised that I couldn't run a studio in Adelaide because it's too small. And there's already a couple of big studios in Adelaide. And so, and there wasn't many people. And it was in the middle of nowhere and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I'll move to Sydney. I leased this warehouse and just started from scratch. How many years ago was that? Oh, it was probably 13 or 14 years ago. And I, I worked two jobs. So I worked a full-time job during the week. And then I worked a weekend job. And then in between all of that, I was building the studio. And I actually built it like... From yeah, from your hands, like, like not paying someone to do it. I actually did it. Wow! So the, where we recorded it, linear is what it's called, right? Yeah. Uh, that whole, both those rooms and that whole thing. Everything. That's yeah. crazy. It's yeah. big. Well, because I, I guess there was no other idea. I didn't have the money to to pay someone to do it. I was already stretching myself to pay the lease, so yeah. I was living there while I was building it. So uh, yeah. And it was just a big punt. You know, I didn't know if it was going to work. You know, you, if uh, most people, if they're going to start a business, you know, you do a business plan, and you, I just fucking thought, you just let's <laughs> build it, and they'll come. You know, it was a yeah. big field of dreams. So, yeah, um, it probably took two years to build it, and oh. then it probably took another three years before. You know, uh, the other thing about a studio is you can't just open it and people start walking in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a reputational thing, and. Um, you know, I started just doing a couple of records here and there, and then one thing led to the next, and then all of a sudden, people know about the studio. What, like, so what kind of gear did you have to start it with? Um, Anything like massive? I had like a little massive? bit of gear. No, I had a little bit of I had a sort of a bit of a home studio in, in Adelaide, and I brought all that gear over. Um, I think I had my um, Ampex tape machine for some reason, because I was always obsessed with tape machines. Um, but apart from that, I didn't really have much stuff. So what, what I ended up doing was every time I got a session... I'd probably put 50% of what I'd make back into more stuff. Just buying gear. Yeah, and then it just like, becomes exponential. Which is an endless process. <laughs> it is an endless process. But, <laughs> but you know, it's that, it's that thing where it's just reinvesting in you. you know? Yeah. And I always thought, well, you know, I'm, the, the tax benefits, I guess you could say, because I was living there, 
mm-hmm. you know, it kind of made sense to take the money that I was earning and just to put it back into the studio. And yeah. so, you know, 10 years later, I, I had an Eve console, you know, I managed to buy a, a bunch of Neumanns and AKG C12 and all this stuff that I, you know, 10 years ago wouldn't have thought would happen. But, yeah, you know, and th- but the other interesting thing is, you know, the, the more I sort of did it, the more I realized it's not about the gear. And it, yeah, you always yeah. say that, you know, when you when you end up having most of the bits of gear that you could want, you realize actually it's it's like eighty percent. Yeah, what do you think it's about more? Oh, I mean, it's totally about, you know, it's about helping the artist realize what they're trying to do. Yeah. You know? So like if, and I think you know, I've I, I at the beginning I did every session that walked in, mm-hmm. but now I just sort of pick and choose what I want to do, and I think a big thing is. You know, having a personal relationship with the artist and being able to work out what is it that you want to do. Exactly. And then how can I help you get to what yeah. you're wanting to do. I bet you've probably seen some pretty horrible situations as far as bands and artists coming yeah. through. And yeah, I've seen them. It's surprising. I've seen fucking almost everything. Yeah. You know, like bands almost having a fist fight in the studio. <laughs> crying to yeah. <laughs> wow. bands breaking up. And, that, and that's just one session with us. So <laughs> Exactly. Part of my problem with my place, my little studio in New York is is the uh, maintenance of the gear and having it, like when something kind of goes wrong with it, like I don't really know how to fix it and then you yeah. got to send it out. So do you have any problems with that? Well, I guess that's where it helps being a bit of a nerd. Like I, I can pretty much fix <clears throat> almost all of the gear that I have. There's... You know, I've got a tech that I bring over every six months and we go through all the big stuff that I can't fix. You know, like power supplies and, and the bigger the bigger issues. But yeah, yeah early digital is horrible. Like, you, you kind of really need to know yeah. how to, like an AMS reverb, I can't fix those. Yeah. But tape machines and the consoles, they're, you know, as long as you can use an oscilloscope. Um, Which I don't know how to use. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, quite often, I'd say 90% of the time, if something goes wrong, it's like a connection issue mm-hmm. or there's something inside that's, you know, it's very rare that electronics these days, yeah. you know, break. So just being able to trace the signal and work out what's going wrong. But I think it's, you know, it's all part of owning a studio in yeah. the year 2017. You can't, you can't have a maintenance crew. You can't have, a, you know. I mean, there's only like the major studios have that. And those, all those major ones are still struggling. They're always like yeah. talking about how they, they're like almost going under now. Exactly. I think the, the, the successful studios are the owner-operator studios. So there's one guy or yeah. two guys. They own the place. They work there. Yeah. You know, and they've built it up from nothing. I mean, that, I think the thing is if, if you've got all these overheads as a studio, mm-hmm. that's where you're in trouble. Yeah. Because you, you know, like you go into the biggest studios and they've got like, you know, receptionists and fucking full-time staff and all this. Yeah. And we've sort of done linear. So if there's no session on, the lights don't even get turned on. No one rocks up. So it's completely like, yeah, it sustains itself. When yeah, it it's like smell of an oily rag sort of thing. You know, the guys that work there are um, freelancers. Mm-hmm. So when there's no session on, I'm not having to pay anybody. Nice. So yeah. so who are who's running it right now while you're uh, gone? Uh, there's four guys in Sydney... Um, sort of four freelancers that work there mm-hmm. um, and yeah they look after it's it's sort of it's funny it's a bit of a happy accident I didn't ever design it this way but you know the fact that the studio now take me out of the equation still you know can sort of run itself yeah it's, it's quite fortunate actually because I know a lot of people who run studios they rely completely on the person that's there mm-hmm. whereas I sort of tried to do it so it's a studio and I just happen to be one of the people that work there yeah yeah 
Um, yeah. I'm so I'm actually curious. I want to go back a little bit. When you said you were you were getting into mechanical engineering, this is in university, right? Yeah. Um, this is for the people at, outside of America. We call it college, college, <laughs> the <laughs> university. Uh, uh, where did you do that? Um, I did that in Adelaide. In Adelaide. Yeah. And what kind of like? Did you graduate in this degree and then start working in that field? No, I, I I sort of was doing it because I, you know, was told that that would be a, a good career for my, um, my skill set or whatever. But I think while I was doing it, I was like, I don't want to do this. Okay, so you didn't like finish the whole program. Well, I I finished all of the stuff at uni. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the pra- practical stuff at the end. You're supposed to go out for six or twelve months and do all this practical stuff, and I didn't do that. Yeah, because I was like, "Fuck this! I don't want to do it." What is what is involved in mechanical engineering? Mechanical engineering is, it's like fluid flow is a big part of it. You know, you think, I think the typical mechanical engineering, um, a lot of my some of my friends worked worked in sort of car manufacturing. So, like you know, one of the guys was designing tires. Another guy was designing gearboxes mm-hmm. for some company in Adelaide. Um, it's it's pretty varied. I mean, it's you know anything from designing air conditioning systems to if you if you're running an oil refinery, you know just okay. like all, fluid flow and processes and integration into computer systems. I mean, God, it was twenty years ago, so it's probably changed a lot since I did it. But they were the main components of mechanical engineering. I think the other thing is it's a fairly good basis for doing other things because okay. you get a pretty good practical understanding of how things work. So, yeah, it's like a lot of signal flow, like in a studio to some extent. Yeah. Or, or I mean, it's funny because, you know, even though I thought it was a complete waste of time, I do feel like I can apply a lot of the things that I learned. Like, yeah. you know, we did circuit designs and systems. Okay. And so, <clears throat> you know, that teaches you how to, to look at a system, you know, electrical system, and work out, well, how's it working? You know, mm-hmm. what if, if something goes wrong, how do you fix it? Because I think that's another thing that's, you know, a big part of running a studio. or well, being a producer, I think, is you know, making a session run smoothly. So when something doesn't work, you don't have everyone standing around going, well, what the fuck do we do now? Exactly. Well, that's one thing I've noticed about your studio is everything works. Yeah. And when you know when it doesn't work and if something's going wrong, you fix it right away. Yeah. Well, that's also the benefit of being the owner-operator. Well, exactly. You know. And I think that's, you know, that's a big part of it. I think a lot of people have their home studios, mm-hmm. you know, which is it's cool. I think it's, it's interesting and that everybody now knows how to do it. But I think there's a big difference between a home studio and a commercial studio. And yeah. one of the big things that I always go on about is, well, everything's set up and everything works. Yeah. You know, and if you want to do something, you know, like there's a bunch of times when I've been in a session, something stopped working. But I will just make it like, it. you know, you just go onto another channel. Yeah. You go onto another. Just, yeah. Don't mess the flow up. Exactly. That's the worst when you're going and there's like a 30 minute delay to And everyone's fix just something. standing around waiting. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And that's, to me, that's the big part of of being a good engineer or producer. So you yeah. make it seamless and you make the technical part, you know, like it. it's yeah. not even there. Some, some people don't realize that because, you know, I've listened to some, I listened to an interview recently with an engineer that did a, a famous Bo- uh, Bob Dylan record. I, I don't remember which one it was. And he was saying, working with Bob, he did, I think, two or three with him. And he said, working with that guy, he's like, there's no, like, there's no understanding of what a studio is to Bob Dylan. He just comes in and he's just, starts yeah. doing his thing yeah. and everybody's like what do we do and yeah. he's like you got to have everything ready to go microphones and everything yeah because he and might get it and take two exactly and that's just the way he is he's yeah. just like no i like that and then um in fact there was one one example where he said that he really wanted to 
he wanted to track the vocal. He didn't. He won't track to a, a just a track that's already on. It has to be yeah. live musicians. Yeah. But he already nailed. They already had this amazing take with the musicians. So what he ended up doing is somehow figuring out to do this signal where the band played along with what they were already playing, and but he was listening to a previously oh, recorded take. Yeah. But in his mind, they were still playing along, and they just tricked him into thinking that it was that way. He yeah. said it was the most expensive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> headphone amp situation exactly paying all the musicians to go in because it was already done he could have just done that but right. but you know and, and I've after doing multiple recordings and understanding like oh yeah because sometimes it's, it's all about the actual you're trying to catch a vibe it's not about the technical oh, aspect dude. of recording you know? exactly and I mean that's the thing I, I what got me into to making records in the first place was like you know these records from the sixties and the seventies, mm-hmm. and the thing is, when you when you listen to a record from from that era, you know that it was done to tape. You know that there's no digital trickery that people have done. Nothing, there's no auto tuning. There's no, you know, slicing that chorus into this and no. flying things here and there. Yeah. And you know, in a way, I feel like a lot of that's been lost. Yes. And definitely. so my big thing is like, let's actually get a decent space together where everyone feels comfortable, mm-hmm. and we can actually track an entire band together. Exactly. And make it sound like a record. Exactly, like kind of the way we did, we tracked the last record, yeah. which was. And I think that's you know, <clears throat> I think it's it's amazing because, um, I've met a lot of producers that don't know how to engineer, and I always find that weird. Yeah. And it's funny because you were, I listened to the podcast that Simon did, and he was talking about the same thing. I started off by fucking cleaning speakers. Yeah, exactly. And then moving up, and you kind of have to work up incrementally, and so I think you know, even though I didn't go to sort of audio school. You know, I started from the very beginning where I was doing sessions and I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you engineer the sessions and you work out, you know, what it takes to engineer a record to make it sound good. And then you can move on to production where you're working with the artist. So when I do a record nowadays, I actually prefer to engineer it and mm-hmm. make that absolutely seamless. You just need an assistant to help you, you know, patch a few things in. But to be able to set everything up and have everything flow and, you know, it's like with drums, I hate it when engineers or producers make drummers sit on the drum kit for five hours while they, you know, it's yeah. like, I know where everything should be set up and we should be able to be tracking drums in about 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I hate sitting around and having people getting all like, oh, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. And, and but that's from experience, right? So you yeah. learn that. Do you remember like the first session you did? Yeah, I, I've had some absolutely terrible sessions where, <laughs> um, you know, a producer would come in and he'd want to do something a certain way that we weren't set up to do it. Mm-hmm. And, like you know, like how? Like... Well, like, you know, before I had the Neve, I had this AWA console and it was kind of a bit like it was a quirky setup and not everything was on the patch bay. So how big was this? Like how many oh, channels? It was a 24 channel, 8 bus. I mean, it was a great console. It just wasn't very well designed. Yeah. And, you know, like he'd, he'd want to insert things on channels and put stuff across the two bus and there was no two channel insert, two yeah. bus insert. And so a couple of times he's like, well, how, you know, I need to do this and what are we going to do? Yeah. Or like, you know, the, <clears throat> I remember it was... This is common, by the way, I feel like with students. Yeah. Like, and producers come in, they want to do it a, way, a certain way. And well, they, exactly. Because they, well, this is how we did it in Nashville. You That's know, right. Like, but like, and it happened a lot to me. And, and it, it, in, a, in a way it was good because it was, it was really stressful at the time, but it kind of made me realize that when you're designing a studio, everything's got to be open. Yeah. So, you know, when we went to rewire the studio, we all of a sudden had all these XLR racks so people can bring in their own gear. Oh, so you made it. Before that, we didn't have... So if you wanted to bring in your own gear, we were like, oh, shit, so we're unpatching our gear in the rack to try and patch in their stuff because we didn't have any other 
by bringing it in. Mm. That's, that can be a disaster after Exactly. And it's not until you do a few sessions. And, you know, we did a few bigger sessions um, where I quickly learned, you know, how to set things up and how to make the flow happen. And, and even just in terms of headphone mixes, you know, for, for a while we didn't have headphone mixes. We would just do the mix in the control room and try and send that to everybody. Oh, and that, that was a disaster. Work. That doesn't work at all. Exactly. Because some studios still do that. But, you know, you'd have the drummer saying, I need more kick drum. And then the bass player would be like, well, I don't have enough bass. And then the singer's like, well, I can't hear this. Yeah, and everything just gets louder and louder and louder. Yeah. Exactly. And you can't get a mix that's going to keep everyone happy. And, and you know, and it's amazing because before you actually do all of this, you don't really know. It, it, that is true. And I've, I've done sessions years ago where it was the same thing. It was like it was a beautiful studio in New York and... We're like, this is going to be awesome, but they yeah. didn't have separate mis- mixes for, he- for, 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 uh, yeah. for tracking. And it was the same thing. It was like, hey, the drummer was like, he got his mix together. I was like, well, I don't hear any <laughs> keyboards at all. And they're like, okay, we'll bring that up. And yeah. it was just like we spent like a day just doing that. Yeah, and exactly. It, and it never really worked out. And I was like, wow, is this really what recording is yeah. like? This is awful. And, and then, But then I found out that it's like another like five to ten grand just to have a, a separate. Decent headphone system. And, and most studios, they just want to get the recording gear first and get that done and like so we can do that and they don't think well there's a whole other thing we got to yeah. do now yeah. to make the musicians comfortable well that's that's what i realized is that you know in the beginning i thought well it's all about the gear mm-hmm. it's yeah. all about the front end it's all about getting the great microphones yeah. and, you know, and then you realize well actually if people can't hear what they're doing yeah or you can't hear what you know on playback if you've got a shitty set of speakers and you can't hear what you're doing then all the decisions that you make are going to be wrong yeah exactly and so you know it, it's I don't know when I realized that, but it's it's that thing where when you you do it, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you do a session and you're like, right, what went well and what was terrible? And I remember doing that at the end of every session. What was terrible and what can I do next time to make it better? Yeah. You know, and, and that's why when you came to the studio yeah. and I'd done it for 12 years, yeah, it was you're like, done. dude, everything's set up, everything's amazing. Everything and it's like, well, that's because you went through fucking 300 sessions where it's been a disaster. Exactly. In some you know, aspect. Yeah, and that's the same for us playing in bands when we came in. You're like, dude, you guys are actually good and you know how to play together. It was the same yeah. thing. We'd all been through that process of yeah. like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't overplay on this track. And Exactly. Because, you know, it's the same with live is I play completely different on recording. I wouldn't say completely, but it's definitely different. I don't play as forceful and as hard. And, yeah. And I just know that, like, whatever I do is picked up by those microphones so I can yeah. play as quiet as I want. Exactly. And actually, the less I play, the better it sounds. Because it's, and, it's space. And mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing you realize is it's like it's what you don't play in certain parts yeah. that makes it really good. And, and, yeah, and then it makes it stick out when you do play yeah. it. Um, yeah. It's funny as well because I think that applies to almost every part of, of music. You know, like you look at We're On Two with Mike and he's a great example. You know, he started off busking. Yeah, yeah. You know, and playing street corners to nobody. And then within the space of 18 months, he's playing fucking Wembley Stadium with Ed. But yeah. it's the fact that he did all of that stuff, you know, if he'd been plucked out of obscurity like off YouTube and then placed in a situation where he's got to pull it off live, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah. But he did all that that busking and playing in front of nobody, mm-hmm. you know, working out, right, this is... Because his voice is, you know, like in terms of pitching and oh, delivery, yeah. it's amazing. It is. And you don't just stumble across that. You know, that's all that work that he did before. Exactly. I mean, you, you have to put in the time and... and yeah. uh, There's always people out there that are fucking... 
Oh, no. man, you just turn on YouTube, and you're like, are you kidding me? I hear I see these kids that are eight years old playing the piano, yeah. and I'm like, what? Like, I don't I don't yeah. understand how this is possible. Exactly. Like, should I just quit? I mean, <laughs> at this point, like, I just feel lucky that I'm, like, working with people That's sometimes, right. right? That's exactly It's kind of right. how it always goes. You're just, like, you're always looking back at yeah. the, the younger people coming yeah. up, and they're, they are incredible. And, yeah, and in every aspect, like every in engineering, aspect. it's like, fuck, or producing, and yeah, yeah. So you're kind of a self-made producer. You, I mean, I guess every producer is. There's no like way to get into that. Like, well, yeah. I mean, that's the other funny thing I find is there's so many. You know, it, it's a bit of a bellwether of the industry, but I I find I get more inquiries from people wanting to work at the studio than I do from bands wanting to record at it. Like I, for a while, I was getting maybe seven or eight emails a week from people saying, "Yeah, I've just finished engineering school. I'm looking for a full-time job." Yeah. Have you and I. And I, at the beginning, I was getting back to them going, guys, there are no full-time jobs. Yeah, no, I can pay you 1000 bucks a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I got plenty Benefits. of work. Yeah, and holidays, yeah. no problems. But it's, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And, you know, engineering yeah. schools, in a lot of ways, they're just selling this dream to it people. It is. Yeah. It's just bullshit. It's, like, it's horrible. They, they sort of have this idea that they're going to graduate and, and walk into you know, a studio and start my cutting records. Yeah. You know, they have roadie schools too. Do they? Basic, I mean, they're engineering schools, but like there's this one in, in America called Full Sail and a lot of people go of there and it costs like, it's like a two-year program, I believe, two or three years. It's like to be a 80, 80 to 100 grand. Yeah, to be basically a roadie. And like then they tech, come off guitar and tech or a tech and they go right in okay. there. They did all the classes. They know how to do a sound check. <laughs> we were having this chat the other night and I was like, you know, because obviously I'm working with a bunch of guys that have been on the road for ages in, in you know, in the crew world. And I was like, so percentage-wise, you know, what what's technical ability and what's getting along with everybody else yeah. on the road? Yeah. And most of them were like, well, it's 80% getting along with everyone on the road yeah. and 20% technical ability. Yeah, well, the 20% technical ability should be you should already know how to do it 100% <laughs> of the time. Right. right? That's exactly right. Yeah, you should just know. That, that's a given. Like, you, if you can't do your job then you shouldn't be there in the first place. That's right. But or if you can't figure out things quickly, at least. Yeah, exactly. Know? But it's funny how when you're spending this much time with a bunch of other people, Yeah. you, you know, you, if you had a dickhead on the tour, it just, I can see why it would just fall apart. Yeah. I mean, it, it is like, a, uh, strangely, it's like, it is like a marriage. Married, Everybody. Married 13 guys. 13 guys. <laughs> on a, but worse, because you get no time away from each other. <laughs> Exactly right. It's ten times worse. Like at least at home, like you know, you go to work. People go to work, and he's spending a little time apart. But yeah, like, yeah, on the road, it's like, yeah, holy shit, do I have to have another meal? With these dickheads. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Dickhead is gonna be the title of this uh, this podcast. Oh, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's like it's just um, it's all a learning process, especially in the studio and on the road. I guess this is funny because we're kind of talking about both. Because you now you have your foot in both worlds. Well, yeah, and that's why I wanted to do it. Like yeah. I. You know, as I said, I've, I've been doing studio stuff for, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12 years now. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of crossover. You know, it's funny because with what Simon does and what I do, we're always sort of comparing notes about how you do mixes. And, and I'd always sort of looked at the live stuff going, oh, yeah, it's good, but it's pretty fleeting and, you know, um, you know, you do a one-off. And I'd never really thought about touring you know, and touring for 12 months mm -hmm. and what that's like in terms of what you have to bring and, you know, setting up in different environments and the fact that every day your PA is going to sound different and yeah. the environment, the stage is different, everything's crowds different. Are different. And that's what freaks me out. Like in the studio, it's so controlled. I know exactly what everything's going to sound like. Yeah. I've got control over where everybody is and separation and, you know, and, and also 
the time, you know, if, if something stops working, well, mm-hmm. I've got 10 minutes to swap it out and start, you know. Yeah, there you go, 10 seconds. We're in live, it's, it's just so different. It's so it's weird. It's weird, and it's so fleeting, you know, you, you do a great show and everyone packs up and then you go. Yeah. And no one, you know, and the thing when you do a record, if you do a really good job on a record, that's, that record's going to be around forever. It's always around. You know, whereas if you do a, a, an amazing mix, you'll have a few people talking about it for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's fleeting. Just the environment's different. Yeah. But it's pretty much the same thing every night, which is why I like to use <coughs> um, keyboards, digital keyboards. I don't like vintage on the road. Because oh, yeah. of that, like a, an actual Hammond B3 with Leslie on the road, those two things do not like no, the road. They do not no. work. They don't really like anything. They don't like anything. They don't like a little weather change. Yeah. Yeah. They they're just like to me, like I don't I want consistency when I'm working and I don't yeah. I know it doesn't look cool. I know that some people think that I like gotta have all that shit on stage, but I just don't care. Yeah. I really don't. I want it to work. I want to be able to play every night and have my that thoughts come across and it works. Yeah. I don't want to have to constantly I've because I've I've toured with Wurlitzers before in the past and they've broke down after a week and Yeah. I've had the Leslie's. I used to have like a little pro line, and even that thing would break all the yeah. time. This solid state too. Yeah, it wasn't even tube, and it would like it would just break, and then you all of a sudden you play a whole gig, and it's awful because yeah. you can't, you don't have your sound, yeah. you know, and it's like. Well, mate, it's exactly the same. Like in the studio, everyone's like, "I oh, tube this, tube that." Yeah, yeah I've oh, got to have tube gear, and it's got to be tapes, and it's like, that's all really good, mm-hmm. but there's nothing more frustrating than when you're mixing something. And you're, you know, you're putting down the stems and then all of a sudden you start hearing this frying bacon sound. And it's like, well, that's the tube gear yeah. that needs new tubes now all of a sudden. And it's just like, yeah. you know, I'm, it, it's so frustrating. And now I see why in the 70s when Solid State came out, all the engineers working at these studios were like, yep, let's get rid of this tube shit. We can't stand it. Yeah. It's so much maintenance, so much hard work to keep it going. Yeah. You know, I, I still remember the story about, you know, those New York studios chucking out there. Pull text in LA two ways. That is crazy. Really, they threw them away. Yeah. Now yeah. that if you can and find on the a street. Pull, you, oh gosh. <laughs> now if you can find a pull tech, they're like sixty five hundred. Oh, yeah. eight thousand. Yeah, exactly. If you're lucky, they, they were getting rid of these things, just chucking them out. Really? Oh, rubbish. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because back then it was like, you know, we've got this EQ that we have to use that you know chews through the tubes. And someone came out with solid state. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And at that time, you don't need to change the tubes. Yeah. So they're like, fuck this other stuff. And at that time, they didn't realize, like, I mean, it it sounded close enough to them being like, it's not. Yeah, for all intents and purposes. It's all all style and it's all taste anyway. Because as cool as the tube does sound, it's still just a sound. It truly is just a way to make a record. It's not the only way. It's just another another color in the palette. Exactly. I mean, it's good to have it. And again, it's, it's funny because... I used to be all about the gear. Yeah. You know, I used to be, yeah. I need to have all this gear. I need to have 47, 67s and, you know. And then when you have all the gear, you're like, well, the gear's probably, you know, the 10% of the end, end result that's repeatable. Yeah. You know, so in the in the big picture, it's, it's you know, it's significant. I, I like it when a record sounds really good, but it's not the matter, you know, if the song's a shit, performance is a shit, well then... No one cares if the record sounds good. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it's it's truly about at the end, it is like whatever you're making, it's it's not on the other side of the microphones, it's not on the other, you know what I mean? That's yeah. what's important because well, exactly. if the music is shit, then it doesn't matter how good it sounds. Exactly. And also, you know, day to day, if you're you know, owning a studio, I realized what I want is everyone to walk out of the studio yeah. talking about how good the experience was. Yeah. You know, because 
whether the record might be good, the record might be terrible or whatever, you know, in a way that, that's not up to me to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the band walk away or the artist walks away and they had a good time and everything was positive and it was a good vibe, then uh, that's half the battle done. Yeah. If you ask me, because it's, you know, it's, especially in this, you know, this, it's so competitive. There's so many people out there trying to make music. If you can, you know, if a band can enjoy the, the record making process, because a lot of the time it's not fun, right? Yeah. A lot no, of the time it's really not hard. at all, actually. It should be fun and yeah. it should be, you know, I've been in sessions where, you know, producers are getting angry and people are shouting and it's like, oh my God, how are you supposed to go in yeah. and make a, re- you know, make some art? when there's so much aggro and tension and people yeah. are pissed off and, you know, someone's throwing something and it's like, you know, and then you do other <laughs> sessions where it's smooth, everyone's happy and, you know, everyone's in yeah. there for the right reasons, everyone's trying to, you know, make the record as good as they can possibly make it. It's night and day and I, it's beyond me why, you know, why, why some people are like that when they're making records. Yeah, I've only done, like, a couple of records with a, with a certain producer that was very, like... He made. I saw him make a girl cry. He made the, the yeah. artist cry in the session, yeah. and it was really awkward after that. She had to go for a walk, and then I was kind of sitting around like, cause he was kind of hardcore. Like I like to consider myself pretty like on point when I'm recording with someone. Like, give me the idea. Okay, I'm gonna nail it, and I'll record it, and I'll, yeah. I'll 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 execute it as good as I can quickly. Yeah. And I mean, he was giving me a lot of grief in this session. I was like, man, I'm really feeling like I'm kind of I'm delivering what I what should be. Which should be yeah. done here, yeah. and the singer was definitely not that. She was younger and hadn't quite had those chops to get it together yeah. yet. Exactly. This should be fun, like you were saying. And if it's not working, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Like yeah. you gave it an attempt, and most of the time, yeah, most of the records you are gonna make are gonna fail. Like fail as in like they're not gonna be these huge not commercial hits. success. Exactly. exactly, and that and that shouldn't really be the goal because you can't really. A lot of that does, I think, have to do with a little bit of luck. And yeah. people make great records all the time and great songs, and there's no reason why one exactly. sticks out over another. Dude, I remember doing this punk record with this band and I thought it was terrible. I thought it was some of the, you know, and I was trying to be professional going, well, it's not for me to judge. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just the, you know, the studio guy. Um, and we did it and I just remember thinking, oh, you know, I'd rather not put my name to this, but anyway, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a couple of months later, I'm reading reviews about how amazing this record is. Okay. You know, like, it, because we just made, they said, make it really distorted. I was like, I can do that. I got a culture vulture. Easy. Yeah. You know, stick it over the two bus and make it really distorted. And everyone's like, oh, man, this sounds like punk records from, the, you know, the 70s. It's, you know, this is the revival, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, really? I wow. thought it was terrible. And so, you know, my point is that you, it's not up to me to judge. Yeah, you don't even know. I could do a fucking record that I think is just, like, amazing. It's going to smash it and it does nothing. Yeah. You know? Well, and then I can do a record that I think is terrible and then goes... And, you know. Well, speaking of which, I mean, I guess we're getting close to that. Like, when you did Passenger Mike's record, um, which record had the the, ma- the massive hit Let Her Go on it? Was that Whispers? That was All the Little Lights. All the Little Lights. Okay. Yeah. I should know this after <laughs> being in a band a year and a half. Uh, um, uh, so how did that process start? Like, when you met him, was that the first record you'd done with him? Yeah. He, he was recommended the studio, I think maybe by two different people. It was um, Josh Pike had just done his record with with me and um, and then another guy called Leroy Lee, I think, who knew Mike from Sydney. And, yeah, came along and initially it was just going to be, I think, five days of tracking. And then we started working together and I thought he, you know, I thought he had great songs and the right attitude. And Yeah, he's he's got a good attitude to work yeah, with. Yeah, it's, it's a great fun. attitude. And it's I think that was the thing. It was, was, you know, 
um, you know, he was paying for all of his own recording from busking, which I thought was, from, you know, amazing. And, you know, just had the, the, the right attitude, I thought, you know, the pragmatic, you know, and still, you know, it's not that he wasn't, you know, thinking big, but he was, you know, very um, focused on what he was trying to do. So, yeah, came into the studio, we, we did maybe a week, and then it was going really well, and, and I was like, actually, you know, I'd love to help put these songs into something, you know, and, and work a bit more rather than just as an engineer. So, you know, it evolved into this working relationship, and then, yeah, I think we made all the little lights in, I don't know, three weeks. Okay. And I remember thinking, I thought that the songs were really good, and so I was like, right, well, I'm, you know, I'm happy to put in some extra effort, you know, on my dime to, to make it as good as I can possibly make it. And, you know, I think I did, I don't remember, 18 mixes of Let It Go before we 18. had the one. Yeah. Which I hadn't really done before. Like, I hadn't spent that much time on mixes. Yeah. But I remember going through them and, you know, at the beginning it wasn't quite right. We had to change a few bits here and there and we retract a few things because when I was mixing I was like, it's not really sitting that well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I remember at the end of the record we were like, man, if... You know, Josh Pike's record, I think, sold thirty or 40,000 copies in Australia. And we're like, man. That's gold, right? Basically. If we can do that in Australia, then, yeah, what a success. Yeah. Yeah, high fives all around. And, you know, but no one had any idea what was going to happen. I don't think so. I remember listening to it in, I don't know why I was in Perth, but I remember I had the final mixes on my iPod back then. It was an iPod. And I was listening going, man, this is really good. <coughs> you know, yeah. I was really happy. I'd, I'd, I remember at the end of that record thinking, I'm not sure I could have done a better job with what I would, you know, with what we tracked. And, um, yeah, it was actually really satisfying when Mike came back and did Whispers. And, and that's when we started hearing, oh, it's just gone number one in New Zealand. And it's just gone number one in Switzerland and then yeah. number one in, you know. And I was like, wow. Was it really cool for you to hear it, like, on the radio, wherever you were, yeah, in the car? I mean, yeah. Would you think, like, oh, man, I should have... Bass was a little too loud on that section. There was a few things that I thought, oh, man, I should have done that a bit. But, you know, it, again, it's, I always think, well, that's what I was doing the absolute best that I could at the time, I, you know. Yeah. I remember I just got my focal twin sixes, and so I was listening going, yeah, I think, I think I'm nailing this. And, yeah. You know, and, yeah, you always listen and go, maybe is, is the, what I, there was one thing I always thought that wasn't right on that. Anyway. I remember thinking, yeah. It's it, tough. It was though. as good as I could do it at the time. It's tough because, like, no matter what you do, I mean, it's art. Like, anytime you do something, you, you always look back and think, I could have done this better. I mean, it's impossible to get yeah. it exactly. Anybody who says they got it exactly right is just lying. Cause yeah. Because it's never... No, it's... You never... But also, if you do think that, then you're never going to improve, are you? Yeah, I, I think I always listen to stuff and go, man, I could have done that better. Maybe yeah. next time. Yeah, sometimes I'm a little on the opposite. I'm a little lazy in the studio. I'll be like, you know, I probably could have played it better, but that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, because uh, yeah. I mean, at the end, it's like, could I have done it better? I don't know. Maybe the next time I do it, it isn't something about that take made it better than this yeah. take, and maybe the mistake was cooler than the non. But also, I think you know, and that's the thing is, you know, in in product, you know, as a producer, it's knowing when to go. You know what? That's really good. Yeah. And you could probably do it better, but it's not going to make anything. Yeah. And it's not going to make the record better. Yeah. You know, and that's what I, I think about the last record that we did that was so good. It was live takes. I loved it, man. You know, and it was. You know, everybody playing together, live vocal takes, which I think is amazing. I mean, it sounds like it sits in the music like nothing else yeah. can. Like, anytime yeah. you hear a vocal now, I can almost hear it when it's overdubbed, la over, like totally. after the fact. Because something about it just sounds like it's glued in yeah. there, you know? Like, yeah. Well, I think what's interesting, I mean, we're talking about 
Mike's upcoming record, yeah. aren't we? Boy, Cried Wolf. Yeah. So the first record we did was all to click. So all the lights was all done to, to metronome. Yeah. And the tempos didn't change. And then we did Whispers where we didn't use a metronome at all. Okay. And in fact, we, we tracked some songs where we did the vocal and guitar first, not to click, and then tried to overlay everything. Oh, and that's that really tough. hard. Yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. And then... We did uh, the record after Young is the Morning, where we did click tracks, but we varied the, yeah, the clicks. Each, each section, each section had that a different was tempo. a process. That was hard. Yeah. So then for this record, we were none like, of none of it. And let's actually just get everybody to play together, and then we don't have to worry about a click because yeah. there's no overdubs. Yeah. And we were like, wow, this is actually fun and easy. <laughs> like, who would have thought you could make yeah. it? And we made it all in a week. And then yeah. we did other, like, five or six other songs that didn't even yeah. make the record. It was, it was so much fun. I still look back. And I think it's the best sounding record, you know, technically and sound-wise yeah. that I think I've done. Maybe we can get another big hit out of it, right? Well, I was hoping. Yeah. I'm hoping too, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thanks, man, for coming on. And I know no you got to go do your work. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah. And I've learned a lot more about you. And I've learned a lot about touring. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. See ya. Thanks.